You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 31st of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme... We have to win this war. We'll do it by minimizing civilian casualties. And may we succeed. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejects calls for a ceasefire and vows to plough on into Gaza. But can Israel win this war? And can Netanyahu survive even if it does? Also ahead. Dans cette langue, le masculin fait le neutre. On n'a pas besoin d'y rajouter des points au milieu des mots. France wants to know why the EU is still speaking English. Now its biggest English-speaking member has left. Later in the show, we'll review the latest business news and meet the official responsible for directing the Arctic policy of Poland. All that coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Israeli forces are now engaged in limited operations on the ground inside the Gaza Strip. Israel Defense Forces sources claiming large exchanges with Hamas overnight. This is presumably the overture to a large-scale assault on Gaza, fulfilling Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's repeated promises to uproot Hamas from Gaza once and for all. I'm joined with more by Noam Ostfeld, a Middle East analyst for the geopolitical risk analysis group Sibyline and a former member of the Israeli Defense Forces Intelligence Wing. Um, Noam, first of all, all militaries prepare for potential future contingencies. How prepared is the IDF to take Gaza by land? Hi, Andrew. Thank you very much. I think that there are many plans for the IDF. The problem with the with the ground operation in Gaza, or the, the biggest challenges we can see, is the actual the urban area and the involvement of uh, civilians in in the, in uh, in the area and that's what we saw why, why the idf is actually have been calling over weeks now for uh, gazan citizens to evac- evacuate to south of gaza and we see that the ground operation with, uh, of right now at least it's uh, mainly focusing indeed on uh, on northern gaza and i think this is uh, very challenging in regard of it's still because the Hamas militants or terrorists are are hidden between the uh, the civilians, and this is make it very hard to root them out completely as uh, as uh, Netanyahu tried to to achieve or aim to achieve. I mean, it is nevertheless the case that there have been Israeli airstrikes reported as far south as Khan Yunus and Rafah, which are among the places that Gazan citizens are being told they should move to. Does it strike you that there's any particular strategic logic to that? Indeed, indeed. Uh, first of all, it's important to differentiate in that regard that what's happening in, the, in northern Gaza uh, in terms of strikes, it's, mu- it's much larger than what's happening in the south, and I think that in that regard, in in the end, also if you look at it in a military perspective or military uh, logic, or actually even rational logic, when you tell that you are going to attack in certain place, it's uh, very possible and it's very likely 
that some of those that you actually mean to attack, the, the Hamas operatives, uh, terrorists, they would move also to the south. Some of them, not all of them. And in that regard, that's, I think, why we also saw, see some uh, airstrikes in, uh, in southern Gaza. How cautious will the IDF be or how cautious should the IDF be that the the massacres undertaken by Hamas on October 7th were designed to bait the IDF into a large-scale assault on Gaza, that, that such an operation is exactly what Hamas wants? Indeed. I'm not sure that Hamas wants exactly that kind of operation because it does have a lot of flaws from it. However, uh, Hamas is m- much more prepared for it. it the, it's basically the home turf for Hamas. It's the the urban uh, the urban area. It is, it's very dense in some places in Gaza. And then Hamas had years to prepare for it and also uh, dig out uh, underground tunnels that go vast all over Gaza, making it very easy for Hamas operative uh, tourists again to just move around. Uh, uh, undetected under the, under the feet of the soldiers basically and pop out from different places surprise them uh, and have like uh, fast attacks uh, fast uh, assaults and then come back to to hide that is also including uh, in the density of the urban area we have the high rise buildings which add another uh, dimension here that uh, basically you have more angles to get fire from or grenades can be thrown from from uh, different flows. I mean, this will obviously not be the first war that Israel has fought in its 75-year history. But right now, how prepared do you think the Israeli public is for the prospect of quite substantial IDF casualties? Bearing in mind, of course, that the IDF is is a citizen army. Every everybody in Israel will know somebody uh, who has been called up in recent weeks. Yes, indeed. I'm not sure that I can call it a citizen army, uh, but it is an army that in the end, many of the Israeli citizens and civilians were part of or had some uh, participation in it. And in regard of the the casualties or the preparation for casualties, I think that it's uh, something that is still ongoing in regard of how the, the IDF and the government is trying to start preparing the population for that. I'm not sure that it's still completely fully uh, in mind of the in the population in mind of uh, how the how much how many casualties because in recent wars or operations i think the israeli society was uh, kind of uh, regular to a bit lower numbers however if this is this war will continue as it uh, we anticipate it to continue for several months then the, then the the amount of casualties is likely to be higher than what was previously Happen, what we saw previously, and the pub, Israeli public, um, I'm not sure whether they are prepared for it yet, uh, but we've seen more and more uh, uh, announcements from the IDF uh, spokesperson and things that, that actually start to prepare it, saying that to the public to prepare for more casualties because of high intensity of the, of the war. Thank you uh, very much for joining us. That was Noam Ostfeld. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Isabella Jewell with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. Clashes between Israeli forces and Hamas militants have continued inside Gaza, amid reports that Israel is advancing on the Palestinian city. The IDF says it attacked Hamas fighters inside the group's network of tunnels beneath Gaza. Thailand will scrap visa requirements for Indian and Taiwanese tourists from next month in the latest measures to boost the country's stagnant economy. 
Entry requirements for Chinese visitors who, before the pandemic, made up the highest proportion of holidaymakers in Thailand were dropped in September. The US will remove Gabon, Niger, Uganda and the Central African Republic from a trade programme due to concerns over human rights and democratic backsliding. The African Growth and Opportunity Act allows eligible countries in sub-Saharan Africa to access the American market. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Isabella. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Despite official expressions of regret from Paris at the time, the departure of the United Kingdom from the European Union was seen by France as an opportunity in at least a few respects, not least for the status of the French language within EU institutions. With the UK gone, why should the EU's business still be done in the language of Les Rosbeefs? France has accordingly filed two complaints to the General Court of the EU, taking umbrage that some recent hiring processes were conducted in English. I'm joined with more by Florence Biedermann, a political analyst, former AFP news editor. She joins me from Paris. Um, Florence, why does France think this is a fight worth picking? Does it really matter what language EU job interviews get conducted in? Yeah, it matters a lot. I mean, what is it called? Francophonia is something... uh more than, you know, just uh, picking on the, the EU Commission because of the language. It's, it's kind of status around the world, like uh, language being an instrument of soft power. So uh, it used to be spoken all around the world. It is receding now, and uh, that's why France is fighting bravely in all institutions, try, uh, trying to maintain uh, maintain it. I mean, does France have serious ambitions of making French the default language of the EU um, as opposed to English, which it very much now is? I mean, obviously, if, for example, a Polish politician gets together with a Portuguese commissioner, the likeliest language that conversation will occur in is English. Yeah, I think France cannot fight against this. I mean, obviously, uh, the importance of English, uh, the fact also that the language is easier to learn, uh, of course, the importance of the US, the UK and all uh, the countries, big countries speaking English around the world means that it cannot fight against its uh, its importance, its influence. But inside the EU, I mean, French is one of the official languages, uh, one of those who is most used with uh, English and German. And um, that's why I think at least inside the EU, uh, where France plays a bigger role that, let's say, all over the world. I mean, it, it matters that uh, French uh, stays an important language because if you just let go, obviously, I mean, uh, English will overcome every, uh, every other language, including in the EU, as you said, like in Hungary, in Poland now, I think youngsters are more prone to study English than French. Uh, so this is against this kind of... Uh, fear of uh, a language being completely forgotten around the world that uh, uh, France is fighting. And whatever the government, you know, right or left, it's somehow seen as kind of a national cause. I mean, is this something that really concerns France, though, the idea of the French language being forgotten? I mean, it's spoken by hundreds of millions of people all over the world. Yes, it is, but uh, it was spoken more before, like you take an example like Lebanon. Lebanon used to be a French protectorate like years ago. There was a a whole training of the elites in French. It's, of course, receding in uh, other former colonies, like in North Africa, in Algeria. uh, There is a trend to to put forward Arabic. So, I mean, 
uh, there are still, like as you said, I think three more than 300 million uh, people uh, speaking French. But definitely, uh, if there is no uh, trend, like to 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 make people think this language is valuable and important and useful. Uh, then, yes, it can recede more and more. But on the subject of an imported language being used to educate the elites, as French certainly was in Lebanon, France is arguing in this court case that the current hiring practices discriminate against non-Anglophones. Isn't that, I mean, a little bit silly? Because really, how many applicants for EU positions don't speak English? The problem is that... uh, is it their first language is it, or not? You know, you pass an exam, even if, uh, okay, my English is, let's say, <clears throat> correct, I hope. Uh, <laughs> if, if, I, if I take an exam in English, it would be more difficult for me than uh, if I take it in French. I, I won't have the same facility to express what I want to say, the same vocabulary. So this is this difference that uh, uh, France is, uh, is basing its, uh, its complaint on. And by the way, it's not the only country complaining about it. I mean, there were formal complaints exactly for the same reason from uh, Italy and Spain, you know, because if uh, the language for every exam is only English, obviously all other countries uh, whose first language it is not will somehow be discriminated. So it's a question also of equity within the EU. You said earlier that younger French people, like, I guess, younger online generations all over the world, are drifting towards English as a default second language. That being the case, is this really something that most ordinary French voters care about, or is this a preoccupation uh, of the French elites? Not only of the French elite, it's it's something important for this idea that you can have of uh, your own country. You know, I don't say all French voters, young or or old, are nationalistic and conservative and think everybody uh, should speak uh, French. But still, it's it's the idea that uh, your country, for those people, and not only the elite, whose uh, French French importance in the world matters a little bit. I don't say again that it's every French. Then it has meaning that language keeps its uh, its importance and that you have the feeling your country still have a word to say in uh, the way things are run um, in the world. Uh, but while we are discussing the French language, Florence, there's also a row, <clears throat> excuse me, I believe occurring at home about the propriety of continuing to use um, gendered French language. <laughs> there is some people suggesting that they want to to make it neutral and to cease assigning genders to, for example, he said, looking around the studio, water jugs, tables, chairs, microphones and computers. Yeah, exactly. Like there is a debate, and there was a decision uh, very recently, like yesterday evening. The Senate decided that what we call the inclusive uh, orthograph spelling uh, wouldn't be adopted uh, as an official spelling. Meaning, each time you want to speak about someone or something in French, you have to say he or she. Like there is no neutral. Uh, French is completely gendered. Now, the problem of uh, some section of the population. Of course, the feminist, I mean, many of them, is that uh, the masculine gender is dominant when you have, you know, to, uh, to, to make uh, any, any sentence. Like if there is a, a she and a he, the he uh, will win in the way you, you, uh, you make the adjectives and then the rest of the sentence. So this is what feminists see as a dominance. And they want to erase this gender thing by including each time you write 
uh, a letter, for example, you want to say he or she, you would say E-L and you would add some letters with some dots, meaning that the word can mean uh, either masculine or feminine. Okay, it's a bit complicated and that's the point. It is complicated. Uh, French spelling is already difficult enough and the Senate, which is, okay, uh, mostly conservative, uh, decided that, no, uh, this this is not the way uh, French should be uh, spelled. But I must say, like, it's not only for conservative reasons. I mean, already if people uh, have difficulties like learning the spelling and the orthograph and the grammar, which are very complex, if you had complexities, that means, like, you are uh, making it even uh, difficult for people who may have difficulties because they are not in the best conditions to, to learn. Florence Biedemann in Paris, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Monocle's November issue offers a deep dive into the design industry, as well as our monthly global investigation of current affairs, business and culture. It's an issue that helps you see the details, gain focus. Here are three things that you'll discover between its covers. One, that the Czech Republic is packed with inspirational design outposts, both old and new. Second, that bustling Jakarta has become a hothouse of entrepreneurial prowess. Three, that there's nothing more valuable than sitting down with wise folk to gain their perspective on the world. In this issue alone, we meet with Raymo Ruffini, CEO of Montclair, architect Renzo Piano, Jeannie Gang and Shigur Raban, and the watch chiefs of Bulgari, Seiko and Van Cleef and Arpels. Discover all this and more in the latest issue of Monocle. Pick up a copy at your favourite newsstand or subscribe today at monocle.com slash subscribe. You're back with the briefing on Monocle Radio, and let's get the latest business headlines now from Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Um, Ewan, some grim tidings for the world's richest man slash Earth's thickest billionaire and his social media platform. Uh, Andrew, brace yourself for some sad news today. Elon Musk has managed to lose a cool $25 billion in his foray into social media. Uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter X is now worth half uh, in fact, less than half of what he paid just a year ago. Now, restricted uh, stock units awarded to employees, we understand, value the company at $19 billion. Just a year ago, Musk bought Twitter for $44 billion. Since then, as you will know, most of Twitter's staff have been laid off or resigned. Musk renamed the company X uh, and changed some of its content rules uh, and also managed to lose more than half of its advertising revenue. Musk's plan for X is to shift away from advertising, which has seen that big drop, and towards paid subscriptions. But so far, the plan hasn't really worked out yet. He's managed to persuade uh, fewer than 1% of users to sign up for its monthly premium service. We estimate that's bringing in about $120 million annually. Unfortunately, that is nowhere near enough to plug the interest bill. Musk's Musk's purchase uh, saddled the company with $13 billion in debt, plenty of interest payments on that and his uh, erratic decision-making uh, and uh, rather looser content so- sa- content safety rules have been driving away advertisers uh, contributing to that uh, big, big drop 
in sales. So, yeah, Musk's uh, car empire may be going quite well, but the social media needs a bit of work. I mean, is there any optimism at large, especially among people who have a financial stake in this, that he has any bright ideas about turning this around? Because speaking as a user, although less than I used to be of Twitter slash X myself, I can't tell what he would be doing differently if he was actually attempting to destroy it. I think I think you flag a fair point. Is that a lot of people are still using it, but less than they did, and that's not really a good way to grow a business. I would say it's not sensible to underrate underrate Elon Musk. Clearly, uh, you're not his biggest fan, but the, the the chap is the world's richest man, and he hasn't come through that through luck. He's been uh, very shrewd in his investments, but this one so far is not looking too bright. He has a grand vision for it. He says he wants to turn it into an everything app that can uh, generate revenue from features like shopping and payments. Uh, It's already started rolling out uh, audio and video calling, uh, and there are plans for a newswire. He's told employees that he wants it to compete with uh, Google's YouTube and Microsoft's LinkedIn and uh, PR Newswire. But so far, none of this has really transpired. And all we've had so far uh, is a bleeding of advertisers and a bleeding of users. But uh, don't underestimate uh, Elon Musk. That is my uh, suggestion for the next year. Uh, And while you're here, investors are starting to absorb the implications of a bit better obesity drugs. Yeah, the drugs are called GLP-1s. They've been hailed as a breakthrough in the treatment of obesity. WeGovi, which is the brand name for the drug produced by Denmark's Novo Nordisk, has uh, uh, propelled that company's stock uh, to make it the most valuable company by some distance uh, in Europe, but quite a feat. Uh, there's a lot of excitement around these drugs, but investors have started to ponder what the widespread use of uh, appetite-suppressing drugs might do to the food industry. Uh, and uh, one uh, analyst has today downgraded uh, their uh, share price target for donut company Krispy Kreme from $20 to $13. Uh, they write that the, um, uh, they've got no idea what the impact of GLP-1s are going to be on overall food consumption. And that's, quote, that is the problem. It's just too early for there to be a, an accurate uh, estimate. Uh, I, th- I think uh, the analysts are really interested to know what this is going to do. There's been a lot of speculation about this uh, over the last uh, few months. They wrote to say that we believe in the Krispy Kreme model. However, we have a difficult time uh, recommending this, uh, at least until uh, GLP-1 wave has started to form. Uh, These drugs are being manufactured at quite a rate, but in fact, the companies can't keep up with demand. There's so much excitement around them. They're not cheap, uh, but uh, I think in a year's time, we'll see far more people uh, taking these obesity drugs, and then we'll get more of an idea on what that will do Uh, to food consumption. I think probably fair to say that this is not uh, immediately a massive threat at Krispy Kreme headquarters. Shares are up 25% so far this year. And uh, when I walked past the uh, local branch near the office yesterday, it was looking pretty busy. Ewan Potts, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. The same stories, the same views dominate global news coverage. But The Globalist goes beyond the noise to unpack what's really happening, to find fresh perspectives and considered voices in current affairs, business and much more. She was doing this all on her own and I think that she's been a real inspiration to journalists around the world, particularly where there are tough areas of freedom of speech. I think that one of the mantras that's going to come out of Washington in the Biden administration going forward is unity, but unity with accountability. 
The Globalist, live every weekday at 8am Zurich time, 7am in London, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. Finally, on today's show, it may not be immediately apparent what vested interest Poland has in the geopolitics of the high north. Poland's northernmost point, a Pomeranian beach, is the thick end of 4,000 kilometres from the North Pole, and there's all of Scandinavia in the way. Nevertheless, Poland's foreign ministry retains a senior advisor for Arctic policy, and he spoke to me at the recent Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik. I began by asking Piotr Rakowski, what Poland brings to discussions of Arctic affairs. Moving ahead of, let's say, traditional support to the Arctic Council activities uh, in terms of the research and the working groups, I wouldn't say that we are the most advanced observer state so far, but we participate in a number of initiatives. However, we would like to add a certain additional value to, um, to, let's say, overall cooperation in the region and the Arctic Council itself for our own initiative, which is the Warsaw Format, um, Mm. by which we are trying to establish a standard um, regular platform of exchange between the current presidency or chairship of the Arctic Council and the observer states, observer states in particular, um, as a form of a dialogue or uh, exchange of views. You have to remember that uh, within the Arctic Council, at the level of the senior Arctic officials or higher, there is no exchange, there is no discussion between the Arctic states, uh, the presidency, the permanent participants. It's just the formal aspect. And then we respect that, obviously, there are some nice initiatives that are trying to include all the observers, including the states. But in a way, it was not enough. And we decided that perhaps we might also contribute by providing an additional exchange of ideas, um, a real dialogue. I mean, the war in Ukraine has, of course, uh, massively changed the dynamic in the Arctic, uh, certainly to the extent that it's now... Well, the Arctic Council is now seven-eighths NATO members, uh, presuming the eventual accession of Sweden, uh, and nobody's really speaking to Russia anymore. Um, do you think that situation is likely permanent? Do we now not? Do we now need to start thinking in terms of Russia as necessarily an adversary when we think about the Arctic as well? Well, relying on the let's say the most advanced uh, Arctic players, not only the Arctic states. Uh, I I believe that majority hopes that it is not permanent, that uh, sooner than later or in a certain moment of time, the situation changes and somehow Russia would come back uh, after the the war is finished and all the settlements are done. Um, I believe there is a a place or opportunity to return to peaceful cooperation in the region. Would it be in a current form of the Arctic Council and other subsidiary bodies? Uh, I don't know. It's for us a bit difficult to decide. But nevertheless, um, looking from the perspective of, let's say, international peace and international community, the the sooner the better the situation changes. Uh, But nevertheless, you know, we have somehow are facing the situation that the risks and challenges which related from the climate change in general were somehow 
maybe not doubled, but uh, connected to the political concerns and geopolitical tensions. I mean, there is, of course, probably going to be a change in government in Poland as well. Do you get any sense from the potentially incoming administration as to how they see the Arctic? I realize it's probably not the highest on their list of priorities, but do you anticipate a uh, an escalation in engagement from a, a new government in Poland? The, there is, um, if if you look like just, just uh, let's say, external outsider to the political parties' profiles that are going to form the government, I believe, and there is a climate change is also on the high agenda. Mm. There is a certain chance, speaking like like just the, the observer, that the issues of the Arctic might get um, a new momentum or the higher interest. But nevertheless, as being involved on the professional level, I would be very much advocating to uh, look at the polar policy where it, where we are standing right now and, you know, try to intensify uh, its implementation. There are a number of uh, positive things or things that for four ages are working well, which is the polar research. This is also our involvement and the political level in the international cooperation. But nevertheless, there are a number of issues which are still remaining, which are also, I believe, mutually mutually interesting for both um, the region and Poland, which is sustainable development in terms of more economic engagement um, in the region. There are a number of areas where we can contribute as well. So there is a there is a potential. It's, it's premature to talk, but I remain optimistic that from the perspective of someone who is very much involved behind the policy, that the implementation would continue and not only continue, but also intensify. That was Piotr Rakowski, Senior Advisor for Arctic Policy at Poland's Foreign Ministry. And that is all for this edition of The Briefing. And here are your hilarious Halloween-themed closing credits. The show was produced by Lillian Forsup and Isabella Gould. Our researcher was Horison Warlock and our studio manager was Callum McChains. The Briefing returns tomorrow at the same time. I'm Andrew Murder. Thanks for listening. <laughs>